My name is Mike. I am the student ministries pastor here at Jericho, and it's exciting to be up here. We've been very busy on Sundays with our source uh, every second week. So we've been out in one of the rooms upstairs chatting. We've been going through Genesis uh, with the grade fives to eights with a couple nines thrown in there. With uh, John's been helping out as well, and it's been a great blessing to have him aboard with us as we do that. We're continuing our Advent series, and we're talking about a mighty God today. And when I was 19, I went on a, a missions trip. It was my third trip up to the Yukon. Uh, we'd go to this small truck stop town of Watson Lake, and there for a week we would run a Bible camp for the teenagers from that small town, as well as some teenagers from Whitehorse, which was about three hours away. Uh, and we'd run this camp in a place where the sun never goes down, and the mosquitoes are doing just great up there. They're, they're everywhere. So it's a three-day ride in a school bus, which is super fun when you're in high school. And then this, you do it the third time, and you're like, okay, now I just, I just want to teleport there. Like, I'm done with this school bus. But we ran, we ran this week, and it was actually on the way back. We stopped the first night in Fort St. John, and we'd sleep in churches along the way. And so that night, the girls went to their sleeping room on the one side of the church, and the boys went to their sleeping room on the other side of the church, and everyone got into their sleeping bags, the lights got turned off, and I just lay there and was, felt just unsettled. I could not fall asleep. And time starts going by, and the silence starts getting broken up by snores, uh, and which also doesn't help you try to fall asleep when everyone else is snoring, because snoring people always fall asleep first, it seems. And soon everyone's asleep except for me, and I just cannot get rid of this unsettled feeling. I'm just lying in my sleeping bag, tossing and turning. I can't sleep. I'm just like, you know, I just have this feeling that I have to get up and pray. And so I sneak out of my sleeping bag, try not to step on anyone, walk outside, I go a few doors down the hall and find this room. Must have been a children's room because I had a really low table with little small chairs. So I moved the chairs aside, I knelt down at the table, and I bowed my head to pray. And all I said was, Lord, and this presence, overwhelming presence, filled the room, and my head just fell onto the table. I couldn't speak, and I just lay in that powerful presence, unable to speak, unable to move. A few years later, coincidentally, also nighttime, with me being unable to sleep, lying in bed, staring at the ceiling, as happens from time to time, because I just think and think and think and think. I'm lying there, can't sleep. I think, well, you know what, I might as well pray, you know. Can't sleep, might as well do something productive. So I close my eyes and I pray, God, let me experience your presence. And after a little bit, I get this sensation comes over me, like waves are tossing me back and forth and completely out of control, just lying in this ocean, waves falling over and over, tossing me back and forth. These are two of my experiences in the mighty presence of God. 
And so as we continue our series out of Isaiah 9, 1 to 6, looking at how he shall be called with wonderful, Brad talked about two weeks ago, counselor Brad talked last week, and this week, mighty God, strong, powerful, capable, just like Mighty Mouse, the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, and the Mighty Ducks of Anaheim, which Mighty Ducks of Anaheim, 1990s retro jersey with the maroon and green, best jerseys ever. Best jerseys ever. Those three, and I, I might even dare say that God is mightier than Mighty Mouse and, and the Power Rangers and the Mighty Ducks of Anaheim all combined. We're just pretty mighty. And we're going to look at three stories about the might of Yahweh, the God of Israel. The God that Isaiah was trying to get them to remember in this passage. And so the first story is one told by Eugene Peterson in his message version. First this, God created the heavens and the earth. All you see and all you don't see. Earth was a soup of nothingness, a bottomless emptiness, an inky blackness. And God's spirit brooded like a bird above the water, watery abyss. And God spoke light, and light appeared. God saw that light was good, and he separated light from dark. Day one. God spoke sky in the middle of the water. Separate water from water. God made sky. He separated the water under the sky from the water above the sky. Day two. God spoke. Separate water beneath heaven. Gather into one place. Land appear. And there it was. God saw that it was good. And God spoke. Earth This is my favorite phrase. Green up. Grow all varieties of seed-bearing plants, every sort of fruit-bearing tree. And there it was. Earth produced produced green seed-bearing plants, all varieties, and fruit-bearing trees of all sorts. God saw that it was good. Day three, God spoke. Lights come out. Shine in heaven's sky. Separate day from night. Mark seasons and days and years. Lights in heaven's sky to give light to earth. And there it was. God saw that it was good. Day four. God spoke. Swarm ocean with fish and all sea life. Birds fly through the sky over the earth. God created huge whales all the swarm of life in the waters, and every kind and species of flying birds. God saw that it was good, and God blessed them. Prosper, reproduce, fill the ocean. Birds reproduce on earth. Day five. God spoke, earth, generate life. Every sort and kind, cattle and reptiles and wild animals, all kinds. And there it was, wild animals of every kind, cattle of all kinds, every sort of reptile and bug. And God saw that it was good. And God spoke. Let us make human beings in our own image. Make them reflecting our nature so they can be responsible for the fish in the sea, the birds in the air, the cattle, and yes, everything that moves on the face of the earth. 
God created human beings. He created them God-like, reflecting God's nature. God looked over everything he made, and it was so good. So very good. Day six. God's power is shown right at the beginning of time. Merely by speaking, God brings into existence the entire universe. And the way in which he created things showed Israel just how powerful and how mighty he was, particularly in the first couple days. The sea and water was a symbol of chaos and disorder. No one could tame the sea. The best you could do was try to predict the weather and guess when to go sail out and when to just avoid it altogether. There was no taming the sea. We still struggle with the oceans and the waves and the tsunamis and the floods. But what does God do in the first couple days? He separates waters. They believed that just as there's water on the earth, there's water in the sky. There's a giant ocean in the sky. That's where rain comes from. It leaks sometimes and pours rain down upon the land. And so God, in the second day, makes the sky, and he separates these two waters. He's bringing order to chaos. He's taming the untamable. And then he goes a step further, and the next day, he separates the oceans, the, the seas, into seas and oceans and rivers and lakes by bringing up land. He's bringing further order to something that's chaotic and cannot be tamed. Only a mighty and powerful God can do that. And Israel understood that as they read the story. God speaks to create things. God brings order to the chaos, tames the untamable. Story number two. A man named Moses has fled from Egypt after killing an Egyptian slave driver. And he's now living in the land of Midian where he has settled down. He's married a woman and now he shepherds a flock of his father-in-law's sheep. And one day when he's out tending the flock, he sees an amazing sight. There's a bush that's on fire. And like most human beings, at least like me, if something's on fire, you go and you check it out. Of course. It's fun setting things on fire. Said like a true youth pastor. So he goes and he checks out the bush. He gets a closer look. And he notices something amazing. The bush is on fire, but it's not burning up. It's not turning into ash. It's staying into one piece. And as he's checking it out, this voice comes from the bush. Moses. Here I am, he replied. And the voice warned him to take off his sandals because he was standing on holy ground. And he says to Moses, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And the power of this presence, the power of God, scares Moses. And so he covers his face. And he's afraid to look at God. God has heard his people's cry as they suffer as slaves under Egypt. And he's going to send Moses to free them. And that although Moses is in the powerful presence of God and he's afraid of that presence, he's recognizing the might of God, he still doubts it. He's thinking, 
God might be mighty, but he can't use me to be able to do this. And so he starts coming up with excuses. What if I go to Pharaoh, or what if I go to my brother and sister Israelites, and they don't believe that you sent me? So God decides to show a little bit more of his might, as if a bush on fire not burning up wasn't enough. And so he tells Moses to throw down his staff. And Moses throws down his staff, and it turns into a serpent. And like a reasonable human being, Moses runs away from the serpent. He's just smart. He's got those good instincts. But God says, reach out your hand and grab it by the tail. So Moses reaches down, grabs it by the tail, and it turns back into his staff. Then God says, stick your hand inside your cloak. So Moses sticks it inside his cloak. He brings it out, and it's white as snow, filled with leprosy. Probably afraid again, he sticks it back into his coat, thinking that maybe that will solve the problem. And it does. He takes it back out and is healed. God shows these signs of might to show Moses that, yeah, I can use you. I'm powerful enough. But it's still not enough. Moses comes up with another excuse. I'm not very good at speaking. I'm ineloquent, he says. So if I'm going to be a strong, powerful leader to lead these people, you probably actually should pick someone who can speak better than I can. But God reminds him of the first story that we shared. He said, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go and I will be with your mouth and teach you and you shall speak. No lack of might is too little for God's might to empower. Creation and Exodus are two of the many stories that Isaiah is trying to get Israel to remember in their time of need. He is reminding them that God brings order into chaos. When God sent ineloquent Moses and delivered his people from Egypt with ten powerful plagues and separating the Red Sea into two so they could walk on dry ground to escape, just as he separated the waters from the sky and the waters of the earth and separated the waters of the earth further, bringing order to chaos. He could help them in their situation. Isaiah's writing to Jerusalem at a time when they were in great fear. The big, bad Assyrians were heading their way after already conquering their brothers and sisters in the northern kingdom of Israel and Assyria was coming. And so they're afraid of this impending invasion of this mighty nation. But Isaiah proclaims that a child's going to be born and will bring the things that they need. Wonder, a counselor who listens to their pleas, a mighty God who can deliver them. And when we talk about a mighty God, we tend to separate that from relationship. We go to the deism part of Brad's moral therapeutic deism that he used last week. Since he used those words and they're like a different language, I thought I could name my sermon a different language. I was going to go with El Shaddai Emmanuel, but they already had mighty God in the info sheet. So. But we, we go back to that deism, that God is something out there, a being to be studied. He doesn't really interact that much with history. 
Yes, he might have created it. He's big and powerful. We can't imagine him being with us. And so we separate the mighty God from God in a relationship. Or if we try to hold both, we look at a mighty God and we minimize the relationship part. Or we look at God's relationship with us and we minimize his mightiness. But they're both. When we read the creation story, we see a God so powerful and mighty that there's no way we can conceive of approaching him. When Moses approaches the burning bush and hears God's voice, he grows afraid and covers his face. When God's presence overwhelms me, I cannot lift my head and I'm unable to speak or I feel completely out of control, being tossed back and forth by waves. But what Israel needs in this moment isn't just a mighty God, they need a mighty Yahweh. Yahweh is the name that God gives them to call himself. And the name doesn't only evoke a sense of a powerful deity, but the covenantal God of Israel. The God who makes promises to his people and keeps those promises. A God of relationship. And when we look at these two stories again, we see God is mighty, but he channels that might into a purpose. In creation, we see the story in Genesis 2, and this time we're going to switch to the New Living Translation version rather than Eugene Peterson's version. When the Lord God made the heavens, neither wild plants nor grains were growing on the earth, for the Lord God had not yet sent rain to water the earth, and there were no people to cultivate the soil. Instead, springs came up from the ground and watered all the land. Again, control of water and sea, chaos. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. God's might brings dust to life, but in an unexpected way. His power and his might allowed him to speak the entire universe into existence. He just spoke, and it was. That is power. But with humanity, he shows that power in an unexpected way. He forms them out of the dust with his hands. You can imagine God stooping down and forming and shaping the dust. This position of stooping, like when a parent goes to speak to a child, stooping down onto their level. There's an intimacy as he bends down in the dust and forms it and shapes it. And then even more intimate, he bends over and he breathes life into the dust man's nostrils, bringing life. He shapes it with his hands, with an intimacy like an artist with his art. His might is to create, and the way he displays his might is to show humanity his love for them. He doesn't just say, let there be humans, and humans pop up. He gets down and he shapes them and spends time forming them and breathing life into them. His might shows how he cares and loves for humanity. With Moses at the burning bush, God shows his power by turning the staff into a serpent and giving and healing leprosy. God shows his power not for the sake of just flexing his muscles and showing his might, but to show Moses, that Yahweh is capable of working even through him. 
And though Moses persists in his reluctance, send someone else. He starts running out of excuses. After he says, I'm not eloquent enough, God says, okay, I'll send Aaron. He can speak. If you don't believe I can help you speak. He just says, just please send someone else. Don't send me. But God, through his power that he's shown already of creating the world and the staff and the serpent and the leprosy, shows that he could just do it himself. He could just go and deliver Israel himself. But he doesn't want to. That's not the purpose of his might. He wants to do it with Moses. He wants to do it in relationship with Moses. God's might was to empower Moses and say, I will be with you when you speak to your brothers and sisters. I will be with you when you speak with Pharaoh. Although I felt God's powerful presence in that classroom and I couldn't move my head and I couldn't speak, I did not feel fear. I felt joy and love. I didn't want to leave even if I could in that moment. Although I felt like I was being tossed back and forth by waves, my primary emotion wasn't fear. I did feel a little afraid. And the fact that it wasn't my primary emotion is amazing since my biggest fear is drowning, as Caitlin is well aware. <laughs> um, but I felt peace and joy and love, which are odd things to be feeling when you're being tossed back and forth and feeling completely out of control. This is the mighty God that Israel needed to hear about in that moment of what felt like impending Invasion, a God who is mighty and strong and capable, but whose power and might was channeled into showing love and care for humanity and for his people. They didn't just need a separate God who might send a lightning bolt to smite someone. They needed a God who was there with them. Some of you might be bothered right now, because at the beginning I said I was going to share three stories, and I've only shared two. Well, this is the third story. Isaiah's prophecy is finally fulfilled in Jesus. Now, when we look at the life of Jesus, we may more naturally see Jesus as wonderful and as a counselor, as a prince of peace, maybe even as the everlasting father. But I don't think we too often view him as mighty. It's one of those things where we see Jesus in relationship with people, and so we minimize his mightiness, his might. But his might shows up in an unexpected way. It's not flashy displays of power. It's not creating something out of nothing or turning a snake into a staff, splitting red seas or seas or bringing plagues upon people. But his might most clearly shows up in his healings. He heals people of blindness, of deafness, of injury, of illness, of de demon possession. He heals them of things that were incurable, especially during that time. And he does it with the words of his mouth and the touch of his hands. Just like God spoke creation into existence with the words of his mouth and formed us by the touch of his hands. He sits in a boat in the middle of a chaotic sea, and with one word calms it, brings order to disorder. 
Or he just avoids the whole calmness thing and just decides to walk on a stormy, turbulent sea as if he's walking on a fort-to-fort trail out for a nice little stroll in the middle of the storm. Again, bringing order to chaos. And the display of might that Isaiah is probably referring to is the most surprising display of might of all. God comes as a little baby. Does anyone see a baby as mighty? Probably not, considering how dependent they are. And they cry a lot. But the signs around the nativity story point to how mighty this baby actually is. Angels, powerful beings, sing and dance and tell people the great news that a baby has been born. No other baby in history has had angels singing for them. Not in that way, at least. Three kings, yes. Kings travel a long, long way to deliver presents and worship a baby born in a stable. Kings bow down before a baby. And King Herod is so afraid of this new baby that he orders all the male children under the age of two to be killed in Bethlehem. The nativity story is a story of might. Kings are afraid. Kings come to worship. Angels sing and dance because the mighty God has become a baby. It's unexpected, a surprising way to show power. And here's the good news of God's might. His displays of might and power are for your benefit. He stoops down and forms you and shapes you with his hands. He breathes into you the breath of life. His displays of power aren't to intimidate you, but to empower you. To let you know that that power that splits Red Sea, that brings the ten plagues, that turns a staff into a serpent, that creates the universe resides within you. The mighty God wants you to know that he loves you, Jericho. That he wants to be in relationship with you. And that's an amazing thing. The God who creates the universe the God that brings order to chaos, the God who rules over everything, is not just some being out there to be studied and philosophized. Yeah, I made up a word. Philosophized about. But he wants to be a part of your life. You can come to the mighty God and talk to him as you would a friend. And that doesn't minimize his mightiness. He's still just as strong and powerful. You can bring all your troubles and woes before him, and nothing is too troublesome or too woeful for his power and his might. You can stand before brothers and sisters, friends and neighbors, co-workers and classmates. You can stand before pharaohs and kings and presidents and prime ministers with the power and might of God on your side. And that is good news. The power and might of God resides within us. It wants to empower us, and he wants to do things with us. He could do it on his own, but he wants that relationship with us.
The band's going to come up and they're going to lead us in another song. And on the sides will be Katie and myself and Brad, (laughs) different than what I have on my sheet, uh, to pray with you that this mighty God wants to be in relationship with you. And sometimes we may focus too much on the might of God and think that we can't come into relationship with that. But this is a time where you can come and you can start that relationship by praying with someone on the sides. Or sometimes maybe we focus too much on the relationship part and think we can't bring things before God, but he's powerful and he's mighty enough and he wants to be able to do something with that. So bring those troubles and those woes to Brad or Katie or myself on the sides and we can come with you and bring it before the throne of the powerful and mighty God who wants to be in relationship with us.